Well, if you'd like to keep your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians and chapter 1, we'll be looking particularly at verse 3, but let me just pray briefly before we begin. Oh, dear Lord God, Heavenly Father, gracious and merciful and mighty, we give you praise this morning because you deserve all praise and honor and adoration. And I pray now that you would come down and meet us through your word and by your spirit, that we may know you more through your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that you bring us many comforts even this morning. Conform us to Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Amanda and I, uh, as many of you know, recently returned from vacation, a vacation by the sea. Uh, the ocean was teeming with sea life, where we were down in Florida and the Gulf of Mexico there. Dolphins and manatee and stingray, uh, fish of all kinds, and sharks, sharks as well. Of course, a shark attack is rare down there, but whenever I get in the water down there, my mind goes straight to the movie Jaws. You know, that huge giant man-eating great white. And uh, if you remember, if you've seen the original movie, uh, in the movie there's a, a memorable scene as, as three men go out in their little fishing boat to catch this great white shark who's been killing everyone. And then one evening that the three men descend below deck and over dinner and drinks they begin showing one another their shark bite scars. It's a, it's a proving of, of their manhood, as it were, by who had the most and the worst scars. And as I was pondering my text in 2 Corinthians today, I thought, imagine if the Apostle Paul was with those men. He'd simply take off his shirt and say, you think you've got scars? Look at these. Over here, from the 39 lashings I received on five different occasions at the hands of the Jews. You know, the pieces of bone and that whip, they really tear the skin away from the body. Oh, and these ones are quite nasty too. The ones from being beaten by rods broke a few bones as well on the three occasions that happened. But I think the stoning may actually have been the worst. You know, they thought that I was dead that day in Lystra. And he would have turned to them and say, you see, it's hard to be a fisherman, but much harder to be a fisher of men. In fact, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Now, 2 Corinthians is a, is a very powerful letter, and it's very biographical. Biography, if you like, of, of the Apostle Paul. I love Christian biographies. I love them because in them we see what's inside of a devoted man or woman of God. We see what it looks like, an x-ray, if you like. And so 2 Corinthians in that sense, gives us an x-ray of the father heart of the Apostle Paul and his experience with God personally. It's about triumph through trials. Triumph through trials. Because affliction marks the Christian life. And, and Paul, in this letter, shows us how affliction and usefulness go together. That's the major theme of the the letter, how suffering and fruit in the Christian life blend together. 
That's the major theme. So then the overall emphasis of the letter is expressed in God's words to Paul in chapter 12 and verse 9, and you'll know them. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul's response, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. God, my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul, when I am weak then, then I am strong. So, that the key to improving your trials, as it were, or becoming fruitful through your sufferings is to throw yourself upon God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And that's my main text there, verse 3. But before we, we dive into the, uh, into the verse, I want to give us some more context about Paul's situation and his afflictions. Paul, you see, has been suffering external opposition, as I've already mentioned with the countless physical beatings, but he's also been facing internal opposition within the church. One type of opposition brings physical wounds and one brings spiritual wounds. And this opposition within the Corinthian church, a church that he planted, a church he'd visited before, after leaving, after the planting, and then coming back again. A, a church he'd loved dearly, but had needed to rebuke before. And there had been much progress in the church, much repentance, but there was still this remnant of opposition coming from so-called super-apostles. You can read more about these super-apostles, these false apostles, in chapters 11 and 12. They were prosperity teachers, if you like, those who had infiltrated the church to promote a, a health and wealth and, uh, and talent gospel, as if health and wealth and talent were the mark of the true Christian minister and, and the mark of the true Christian. And, and these guys, these leaders, they were assassinating Paul's qualifications and Paul's character. They criticized Paul. They said he was weak and afflicted in his body. And so the inference then is, oh, he must be in sin to deserve that. Plus, he's not a great preacher, and he's unreliable. He's a fake and he's a flake. You see, Paul had changed his plans to visit the Corinthian church again. He'd wanted to come to them to give them what he calls their uh, a second experience of grace. It was read out and Pastor Clint read the whole of the first chapter there. But he didn't come and his enemies then accused him of vacillating. Oh, you can't trust Paul. He lacks ability and he's unreliable. There's no integrity there. He says yes one moment and no the next. You see, these super apostles were stirring up trouble and some of the folks were believing them. And that's what tends to happen. And it's a warning for us, I think, uh, an early warning for us here and a lesson to learn is that, you know, when you hear certain things about certain Christian folks, make sure you know the facts yourself before believing and running with that story. Go speak to them yourself. So it was, a, it was painful for Paul that, that some of those that he thought were with him had turned against him very easily. Now, we enjoyed a great time yesterday, many of us, at the, the Hansmer's picnic. Always a, a great time as, as a church family. Um, and uh, just before I was about to leave the, the, the picnic, some of the, the kids tried to get me involved in a soccer match. 
I said, come on, come on, play, play. And so I, I put it off, put it off, and I thought, well, I'm gonna, I've got to go do it, I'd, I'd promise. So one of the Hindle boys brings me over, and he shouts triumphantly as we approach the, the field, hey, guys, I've got a professional with me. <laughs> there was great excitement. I lined up with my team. Little Jarek's McLeod looks across at me, says, with you on our team, it doesn't matter how many the opposition have, we're going to win. And so off we went, and we, we kicked off the match, and um, we went one, one goal up. It was super. We were in the lead. It was going well. And then from nowhere, all these kids started appearing and joined the opposition team until we were outnumbered by about seven or eight. And then it was equalized, 1-1, one, one, and then we went 2-1 down. And then one of my teammates turns to me and says, hey, what are you doing? You're doing nothing, man. It's bad enough when the crowd turns on you, but when one of your teammates turns on you, it really hurts. And so, but in all seriousness, I'm illustrating a point, you know, it hurts when those closest to us betray us. So have you ever been betrayed by words and actions by those you love most and want to be loved by most? See, friends, external physical hurt is never quite as bad as internal spiritual hurt. Paul says in chapter 11 that on top of his beatings, he says, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. From the physical side, this man knew pain and trouble beyond anything many of us could ever conceive of. He knew physical pain, but there's something even more painful and he says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure, the daily tribulation, the daily suffering, the daily trouble, if you like, that comes upon me with concern for all the churches. I think it may be better to be beaten by rods than to be maligned within the church and by those closest to you. Like our Lord Jesus, stabbed in the back by Judas, denied by Peter. Have you ever wronged or have you ever been wronged by someone you love? Maybe a fellow member in this church. Think about it. A friend, your spouse. What about a sibling, brother or sister? How about your father or your mother or even your child? Now what's our temptation in that moment? When, when someone wrongs us, someone close to us wrongs us, I suggest it's twofold. We're either tempted to retaliate in anger and fear, as Pastor Clint was even talking about in the call to worship and the, uh, when, we, when we went to our confession time. So we're tempted to retaliate in anger and fear, or we're tempted to shrink back in anger and fear. Our anger and fear wants to punish the offender, so the justice must be done. And our anger and fear wants to preserve ourselves so we can't be hurt again. Or we even punish the offender by our withdrawal. But what's Paul's response to affliction? Well, I think he shows a father's heart towards them. And I think it's worth just turning to chapter 6 and verse 11. Flip over there very quickly. We won't be flipping around too much, but I just think it's worth rooting this text in your, in your mind, chapter 6, verse 11, and, and Paul says this, 
we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. It's Father's Day today, and Paul here shows great paternal love to the church in Corinth. The problem wasn't with his heart, it was with their hearts, you see. Paternal love deserves filial affection in return. But you can only give love, you can't extract love out of someone. Good children respect and love their fathers, but it comes from a heart freely in response to the father's love. But, but the hearts of Paul's spiritual children were restricted. Uh, I, I was reading uh, the commentary uh, from uh, the old theologian Charles Hodge, and the old language says uh, of the Corinthians, who had this, res- they were restricted in their own affections, it says, you are straightened in your bowels, like heart constipation. There's no room. They need to open up. Theology of constipation for you there, in a nutshell. Suffering persecutions from the outside and cold-shouldered from the church itself on the inside, surely the last thing you want to do in affliction like that is to open up your heart and give yourself to other people, especially when they are resistant to you. Or take the principle more broadly. How is it possible to enlarge your heart and and give yourself to others in the midst of many disappointments and deep pain that you experience in the Christian life and not devolve into, into bitterness and just give up? The answer? Because you know your God. You know your God, brothers and sisters, and you know Him as a Father who is rich in mercy and full of comfort for all afflictions. That's how you can open up your heart. That's how you can respond like Paul. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. That There are three ways that Paul addresses God here. But I I, I want us first to notice something, friends. He is the blessed God. Notice how Paul starts. Blessed be. It's a term of praise. In all his troubles, Paul's response is not grumbling or questioning God. He is worshipping God. He's worshipping God. He had every reason to be distraught or discouraged or or just focused on his troubles, but he is filled with joy and gratitude because of who God is. And that, I suggest, is our first duty. It is to bless God. There has never been a moment when God is unworthy of our praises. Never. The angels are praising him right now. They look and they say, he is amazing. He is beautiful. He is worthy. Holy, holy, holy. We sang it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Look at his love. Look at his joy. Look at his wisdom. Look at his providences. We must bless his name, friends. How many of your prayers start with, blessed be God? Or do you go straight to asking for blessings for yourself? 
You see, our subjectivity and our self-centeredness is our biggest problem. We rush into the presence of God with our minds on our problems and our trials and our needs and sufferings, and we immediately ask for things instead of praising Him because He deserves it. And that's why much of our prayer is man-centered, not God-centered. Now, it's not wrong to ask for daily bread or for forgiveness or for protection, but first, hallow His name. You see the structure even in the Lord's Prayer. Or look at Job, for instance. In the event of massive suffering, how does he respond? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be God. That is always the starting point, friends. Worship. Ungrateful and entitled people do not praise God like this, especially in affliction. But I suggest that the mark of, or one of the marks of our spiritual maturity is the extent to which we are conscious of a sense of thanks, of praise and thanksgiving. It's the one who bursts forth with blessed who knows these things. So that the more that we start with blessing God's name in affliction, the more grateful and joyful we'll become in our afflictions. And often the people who are the most miserable are those who are most concerned with getting blessing from God than worshipping God Himself. They are always thinking of their emotions, always thinking of their problems. But the way to be blessed is to forget yourself and look to God, who is the source of blessings. And then you begin to enjoy the blessings of God. And then our hearts can open up, even towards our enemies, or even towards our loved ones who act like enemies. The reason Paul could have a fatherly heart of love towards awkward people and opponents in the church is because his heart is first overflowing with worship and joy in God the Father. So let us look at Paul's God then in this affliction. There are three titles by which he refers to God. Firstly, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the Father of mercies. Thirdly, God of all comfort. First, he refers to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What had happened to Paul on the Damascus Road? Well, he'd encountered the risen Lord Jesus Christ and he'd been saved. A second person of the Trinity. God the Son who took on flesh whilst never diminishing his divinity, he becomes the God-man and he lives a perfect life of obedience as a good son to his father. And in line with the covenant made with his father, he goes to the cross and in the place of sinners like you and me and Paul, he takes upon himself the punishment for our sin, exhausting the wrath of his father in our place. In other words... He lives a righteous life we cannot lead, and he pays the price for our sin that we cannot pay. It's a great exchange. Our sin on him and his righteousness credited to us. So that, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, in that most wonderful, concise statement of the gospel, for our sake he, that is God the Father, made him God the Son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
And so then through faith in the Lord Jesus, we gain access to God the Father. When you can say, my Lord Jesus Christ, you can call God my Father. He's no longer coming to you with the penalty of judgment, but with the love of a gracious Father. And if that's the case for you today, friends, you can know with absolute rock-solid confidence and certainty, as Paul says in Romans 8, that if he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So that when the Christian considers his or her sufferings in light of this adoption, it puts everything into perspective. If Christ the Son is your Lord, then God the Father is your Father. What a joy to know this. What a joy. Whether you've had a, a good earthly father or not, you have a perfect heavenly father always. And if you're not a Christian here today, or if you're backsliding in your faith, then why resist the Father's love? There's far more grace in the Lord Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. Paul, you know, was murdering Christians. He refers to himself as the worst of sinners. And God forgave his sins because of Jesus' work on the cross. He will do the same for you. Just come. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's also the Father of mercies. That is, he is the fountainhead and the source of all mercy. Do you realize that, that our Father in heaven is an infinite reservoir of every mercy that flows forth for his children? He has immeasurable compassion. And his mercies are also new. They're new every morning. Every day, there is mercy for the Christian. And tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow. So how can you sleep well tonight with all your concerns for tomorrow? Because you know there will be mercy in the morning. And it's interesting that so many of the problems that Christians experience in their souls is because they don't see God as a merciful Father, as, as keen to give mercy, yeah, give a little bit, but not, he's not overflowing with it. Too many times, Christians don't even get about the business of using their gifts for God, and instead they retreat into a spiritual sloth, like the man who buried his one talent in the parable Jesus tells in Matthew 25. He doesn't step forward. He doesn't expand his gifts. He doesn't become useful in the kingdom. Why? Because he thought God was a hard taskmaster and not a gracious, merciful father. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and went and hid my talent in the ground. And the idea is that we too often think of God as harsh and exacting instead of full of mercy. We don't think there is mercy for us tomorrow and that God's going to hang us out to dry if we make mistakes. And so we shrink back in, in fear. But God is full of mercy. He's overflowing with the mercy. Like the father in, in the parable of the prodigal son. He, he comes running, doesn't he? Running to meet his wayward son when the son finally repents and returns. 
but to receive this mercy, you must return. You must return to Him. You must repent of your self-indulgence and self-confidence. You must come to Him in prayer. And mercy is overflowing for you. It's amazing when you read the prayers of the, the old saints. You look back at some of the old prayers, Brook of Common Prayer and some of the, the Luthers, the Calvins, the different ones, the Spurgeons. It's amazing how much in their prayers, not only they begin with this praising of God, but they're, they're cognizant of mercy. That word mercy and his mercy is used so much when you read those old men who really knew God because they knew his mercy. Paul knew his mercy, you see. In fact, he knew that the reason for his afflictions was actually mercifully to keep him returning to God in prayer, to keep him dependent upon God. He says in verse 8, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. That is the purpose. God ordains our trials not to hurt us, but in his mercy to show us our nothingness so that we might know his grace and power in our lives as we lean on him, as we go to him, as we seek it from him. And Paul speaks later, doesn't he, of, of a thorn in his flesh that he'd prayed three times for God to remove. What is the thorn? Scholars debate, many lean to the fact it's probably some physical ailment of sort. Could be some depression, but physical ailment of sort. And, and God hadn't done it, and Paul recognized this was to keep me from getting proud. To keep me dependent on God's grace is all sufficient. Often the case when you're maybe highly talented, you're quite intelligent, maybe you're gifted in, in some ways to, to think, I'm something. And it doesn't take much, does it, when that illness comes along or the diagnosis comes in or you're in relational strife to realize actually I, I, I'm nothing I'm weak some people say that God will never give you more than you can bear that's not true of course he gives you more than you can bear that is the point so that you go to him to bear it for you then you get the mercy and he gets the glory but for us, it's often, uh, it's often like you're in the gym and you're on that bench press machine and the bar is down on your chest with so much weight and you can't shift it and it's slowly crushing you to death. It's crushing the air out of you. And this huge guy, 250 pound of muscle, comes over and says, let me lift that off for you. And you say, no, I can do it myself. All the while, you're slowly having the life squeeze out of you. This is what we're like so many times with God. We won't go to him. He's ready with mercy for you. But when by our afflictions we are kept dependent daily on God's mercy, we're then also constantly reminded of the mercy we need. And you know what happens then? We become more merciful people to others. That's how Paul refrains from retaliation in the face of those who do him wrong. He's constantly aware that he's received mercy, is receiving mercy, so he can open up with a heart of mercy. Then you know what? You don't become a, that kind of person that keeps their foot on the neck of those who have done you wrong. Hard-hearted, wanting to get your pound of flesh. And, and you don't have to do that 
in conversation. You can do that in your heart, in your mind. The heart becomes stony. The heart becomes bitter. No, when we realize how much we've been forgiven, we forgive much too. We forgive much too. It's also quite remarkable how being soaked in God's mercy makes us seek to serve others rather than lord it over others. Now remember in the context, these super apostles, these fake apostles, they're demeaning Paul's character and his abilities and his reliability. Paul said he would come to us and, and he didn't. So you can't trust Paul and what is most concerned to Paul is they think you can't trust Paul's gospel. That's the inference there. They preach a different gospel. So you, you hit the character of the man, you'll hit the character of his gospel. And so they want to they kick out the real gospel. They kick out Paul by assassinating the character. But Paul, what does he do? He doesn't retaliate. Instead, he tells them why he didn't come. He says in verse 23 there in chapter 1, it was to spare you, to spare you, that I refrain from coming again to Corinth, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. You see what Paul is saying here. He explains more in the first verses of chapter 2. Though there's been some improvements in Corinth since that first letter, and, and uh, there's some other letters that went missing, there's some other warnings that's been given out, there's still some stubborn resistance there with these super apostles and some who are, who are actually believing them. And Paul is basically saying, last time I visited you, it was so painful for me, and so painful for you because I needed to rebuke you that it's best if I don't return again at the moment in person because if I do, I'm going to need to rebuke you again and it'll be too painful for me and too painful for you and I don't want to come again to you in severity. Instead, it's best if I withdraw my presence, not my heart, it remains open to you, but I withdraw my presence in order that the Holy Spirit may work and lead you to godly repentance. Giving that space for the Spirit to work. And friends, there is so much wisdom here. I, I hadn't seen it so much in the text as when I recently studied it. You know there are times where you try to counsel people. You try to minister biblical wisdom to others. And they consistently resist you. And your heart is open. And you feel like a father towards them, a mother towards them. And they constantly resist you. And your, your heart is love towards them. They might even turn on you in anger. Sometimes it's best to take a long-term view and leave them be. Not out of retaliation, but in love. And just hope and pray that God would lead them to repentance because it's only God that can really do it that is why as a pastor a pastor is not to lord it over your faith that is we cannot force faith in you we can't force faith in you real faith instead our work is a service for your sake come alongside you come underneath you to serve you for your sake for your good and it's sometimes better for a pastor, for any of us who are engaged in this work, to bear that pain, forbear, in order that God would work and the relationship between you and the other person may be preserved. I think this is a great model of humble servant leadership 
from Paul and a great model for all of us. He shows a heart, a heart of what we could call paternal leniency. There's a flexibility in Paul. It's a word to fathers here on Father's Day, a word to fathers young and to fathers old. Sometimes we fathers think we need to correct every error that our children make. And if we don't, we're being cowardly or we're not fulfilling our duty. So we dive in every time and suddenly it becomes more about getting it off our chests than doing our children good. Even though they might be in the wrong and a rebuke would be justified. Now of course there are times where you've got to say it. But when there's a consistent resistance, Paul says sometimes hold back Withdraw your presence, not your heart, but your presence, and trust the Lord for the results. What, what amazing discernment and patience. Brothers and sisters, I say to us, we need a long-term view of ministry in the home and in the church, and also with unbelievers. And for that, we need the Father heart of Paul, even God the Father's own heart, which is a heart full of merciful patience. God is a merciful Father, his mercy comes to us in sending His Son to die for us. And His mercy comes to us by the many daily comforts He gives. Because God is also the God of all comfort. That's the third title here in the text. He's the God, notice, of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. Not some, but all. Any comfort you need is found in Him. It's all there, and it's for every affliction. Not one affliction where he is not, there's not one affliction where he's not present. There's not one affliction that he does not tailor make his comforts for. Infertility, death, depression, betrayal, sickness, financial problems. Relational strife, and on the list goes. A total supply for every emergency. Do you realize that? We need to realize that. Now, this word comfort has a sense of uh, encouragement, sympathy, uh, strengthening, and also admonishment. People just think of comfort as just an arm around a shoulder, a, a there, there, you know? Well, it is an arm around the shoulder. It is that sympathy, but it's also a kickstart to get things going again. Have a read this afternoon of 1 Kings 18, and you see Elijah. Elijah has had, just had this, has this great uh, victory against the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. But by 1 Kings 19, we find him running away from Jezebel's threats and sitting under a broom tree, depressed, and despairing. And what does God do? God sends him an angel to minister to him, to give him food and water, and to help him on his way to Horeb. But then God comes to Elijah and tells him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Get back to work. The comfort of God there, sympathizing, strengthening, even admonishing. That's true encouragement. That's true comfort. Friends, we're, we're so obsessed in our culture about avoiding suffering and pain. It's health and safety 
above all. Children are never allowed to feel pain nowadays and take risks and fail at things. Everyone's a winner at sports day in case little Johnny gets depressed and feels low self-esteem. And this idea of self-preservation has crept into the church such that some churches are preaching a therapeutic gospel rather than the true gospel and a cross-shaped Christian life. Cruciform Christianity. No, says Paul in verse 5. As a Christian, you will experience the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. There's a kind of fellowship you will have with him in your afflictions. Amazing. Not that you make atonement for sin like him. That was his unique one-off suffering work that only he alone as the God-man could do. But in union with him and following him, your afflictions, given by God, ordained by God, are to strengthen your Christian witness so that just as you suffer abundantly, you can see it in the text there, uh, abundantly for Christ's sake, the uh, abundant comfort of God keeps pace and pours into your life. And then when the world looks at the church, they don't see a, a people full of strength in human resources. They see a limping body sustained by inexplicable comforts. That's what they see. And they go, how is this so? And maybe they're saved. And maybe then they bless God's name. So our comfort in afflictions serves our Christian witness in the world. But also our suffering and the comfort we receive serves our Christian ministry in the church. You look at verse 4. The purpose of us receiving comfort in our affliction is so that we might comfort others in theirs. The idea is there again in verse 6 and, six and 7. You see, when you suffer pain or when you suffer sickness or disappointment and instead of then becoming bitter and you open your heart up to God and receive his comfort, you then become more sympathetic to the sufferings of others. Isn't that the case? You know, when we suffer, it certainly tenderizes our hearts and we certainly have a little bit more sympathy for other people who are suffering around us. That's what he does. Charles Spurgeon says, If our hearts learn sympathy, they have been in a good school, though our teacher may have used the rod most heavily. For none can bear with the infirmities of others if they have not been made compassionate and filled with a fellow feeling for the faint and the trembling. Good words from Spurgeon there. But here's the thing. You must receive the afflictions in order to receive the comforts. It is only in the valley of the shadow of death that you experience the comfort of the shepherd by your side. You see that? Spurgeon again. The keys of men's hearts hang up in the narrow chamber of suffering. And he who has not been there can scarcely know the art of opening men's souls. The keys of men's hearts hang up in the narrow chamber of suffering. And he who has not been there, he who has not been in that chamber of suffering, can scarcely know the art of opening men's souls. It is the suffering Christian, you see, who actually knows God experientially. And then you have the capacity to offer comfort to others. You can then begin to know the art 
of opening other men's souls. So brothers and sisters, there are a thousand reasons flowing in and out of your afflictions. We only see a few of them. We think we're wise, we think we can see what, but God sees all of the different connections. He sees everything there. So when you face the, the fiery furnace of affliction, think this, God is preparing me for a great work ahead. Way to look at your afflictions. I know you're suffering, lots of you. God is preparing me for a great work ahead. It might be a work of evangelism as you display Christ's sufferings and comforts in your body. And it may be a work of counseling in the church as with the comfort you receive from God in your trial, you comfort another in a similar trial. Isn't it the case? You suffer a particular thing, you receive comfort from God, all of a sudden, God's bringing to you people that have suffered the same kinds of sufferings that you've suffered and, and then you've received that comfort and now you can activate that comfort towards them. So it may be a work of counseling in the church or it may be that your suffering sets the church to praying. Paul says in verse 11, help us in prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Now I'm about to close, but I know that some of us here today may have experienced and will experience losses that, that won't be fully resolved in this life. The sufferings are so deep, uh, they're inexplicable, they're, they're so painful, it, it's a deep affliction that, that no one around you can quite understand maybe. But here's the thing God understands. He's even the one that's ordained the suffering. And so for every one of you today who feels like you're being crushed by your suffering, know this, know this comfort that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This light and momentary affli affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 17. It's what Paul says. And, and so you can know that God will bring someone in the future that you make comfort in this particular way and as painful as your suffering is today it is temporary and it is lightweight compared to the weight of glory that you will experience forever in heaven so think how painful some of your sufferings are think of the weight of that pain and how long it seems to be going on and think in comparison I've got an eternal weight of glory it's going to be amazing because I'm feeling this so heavily and it seems like forever. Imagine what glory is in store. Imagine what glory is in store for us. You can only imagine. We've known deep wounds in our church, I think, over the years, certainly over the years I've been here. And we can testify that God has never done us any wrong. And he has never failed to bring us comfort in all of our afflictions. He's marked Calvary grace by the Calvary cross, I think and by his manifold mercies that he's poured out on us. So what are you suffering now? What are your sufferings? And where will you go? Well, I suggest where else can you go? To your Father, 
You go to your Father who has eternal rivers of mercy for you and all kinds of every comfort that you need to strengthen you in order that you might strengthen others. See, the problem with the church today is the church is far too strong. But if the sufferings of this present darkness today will weaken us so that we would humble ourselves and pray, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. If our sufferings would humble us to pray like that, then God may just grant revival in the church as his power is made perfect in weakness. Let's pray. So Father, indeed, we have heard your word uh, minister to our very souls now uh, by your spirit. Apply this word. Oh Lord, how we need you to, to meet with us, to deal with us in our hearts, in our souls. That we might know your purposes in suffering and affliction for us, that we might comfort others with the comfort we receive, that we might even come to you to bless your name and see you as the God of all mercy that you are, even the great mercy that you've given us in the Lord Jesus Christ and all the promises that find their yes in him. We are weak and we are fragile, and yet when we realize who our God is, we are strong and we are victorious. And we know that through many tribulations we'll enter the kingdom and we look forward to that day of glory as we march on together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand and we're going to sing once more to close. Well, if you're a Christian today, it is indeed well with your soul. Just listen to these words of the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Amen. Please go in peace. You're dismissed.